0: Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. My name is Ella Whelan, I'm the assistant editor at Spiked and this week I talk to Brendan O'Neill on the renewed fervour behind Me Too, Phil Mullen talks to me about what Carillion tells us about the UK economy and Claire Fox gives us the lowdown on the continuing war between trans activists and feminists. Unless you've been in a hole in the ground for the last six months, you'll now be familiar with the hashtag MeToo. The sexual harassment panic has now been raging for about four or five months, and it shows no sign of stopping. In fact, with the new Time's Up campaign in Hollywood and more accusations surfacing each week, it seems that the support for this sexual witch hunt is stronger than ever. But what's really going on here is this more than just a hashtag. Do normal women actually believe in this social media movement? To discuss this, I spoke to Spike's editor, Brendan O'Neill. So Brendan, has the Me Too movement died off since it started in 2017? Or do you think that it is carrying on raging in full force this year?
1: I think it's definitely carrying on. I think it's going to carry on for a while. I think the fact that it's carrying on, the fact that it's Actually, getting stronger by the looks of things, and, and and crazier, and and more determined to destroy men for the you know most minor of misdemeanors. I think the fact that that's happening is really interesting because what it suggests is that there's something else driving this than just a hashtag or even just influential celebrities and journalists, many of whom are falling in line behind this movement. There's got to be something else, something more powerful motoring it, and I think that is a lot of incredibly problematic political trends that have been growing in force for decades now like for example the culture of victimhood where everyone wants to see themselves as a victim and and you win public praise and and you get moral purchase through being a victim so there's a real Invitation to people to act the victim. So that's one of the most important factors here, where more and more uh, well-off, well-connected, influential women recognize how valuable the cult of victimhood is and will do anything to define themselves as a victim, even if it means exaggerating an experience they had or, or making out that it was worse than it actually was. So the victim culture is very important. Also, the um, rise of a kind of misanthropic feminism over the past few years, past decade or so, which tends to be very suspicious, not just of men, but of the relations between the sexes, of any interpersonal relations, of family life fathers, young men, young white working class men in particular, who they have a real problem with, lads, as as we're called. That's another important factor here, the the uh, rise of a feminism, which is not really about winning liberation for women, but really is about pushing this idea all the time that people can't really be trusted to negotiate their own relationships and their own lives, and you need some form of intervention to re-educate us and guide us and everything else. And then the third thing, I think, is this willingness in recent years to believe anyone who makes an accusation of assault, particularly uh, sexual assault, any woman or child in particular who makes an accusation, the pressure on us is to instantly believe them. And that has an incredibly detrimental impact on due process, uh, where you automatically accept that anyone who makes this kind of accusation is telling the truth, end off, so we have to accept it. So all those things mixed together, the rise of the victim culture, the rise of a new misanthropic, quite middle class feminism, and the rise of this cult of belief, this cult of credulity where everyone is just instantly accepted as truthful if they say they've been raped or abused. All those things are what's motoring me to, and that's why this flimsy, hashtaggy, ridiculous campaign is going on because of what's motoring it.
0: And there have been countless accusations since this all kicked off last year. And lots of them haven't been met with much scepticism. But the case of Aziz Ansari, who is a TV personality in the US, very popular, uh, he was accused essentially of having a bad date and bad sexual experience and uh, his accusation has been criticized by lots of people lots of people have come out and sort of said is this an indicator that me too has gone for gone too far i mean what is so important about the ansari allegation
1: yeah i think the ansari allegations are very important in terms of what they tell us about me too uh which is that there is increasingly this conflation of sex and rape and this conflation of a sexual encounter with sexual assault. If you read that sordid piece of journalism, which I think was incredibly bad journalism, to allow someone anonymously to give so many details about where he put his fingers and what he was doing with his dick and all this stuff, this really, one American journalist called it revenge porn, 3,000 words of revenge porn, and that's exactly what it was. What I think it really demonstrated is the way in which young women in particular are encouraged now to see sexual encounters as potentially... Rape, And to redefine them as rape or to redefine them as sexual assault or as sexual misconduct, which is just this completely amorphous, not even necessarily criminal phrase, which could cover anything, anything at all. So that's why that is important, because that was a consensual sexual encounter. And yet it was written up and interpreted by some feminists as assault or as something deeply problematic, which tells us something important about men in general. It's such a dangerous idea because what it does is it treats sex as dangerous and destructive when, you know, for most people it's pleasurable and enjoyable. And it undermines the seriousness of rape by uh, arguing that even something like a very minor encounter that you possibly just didn't enjoy is the same as rape. Rape is something completely different to that. Rape is the violent crushing of your autonomy and your ability to make a choice that's an incredibly serious crime so these feminists these me too extremists who are pushing cases like this are both problematizing sexual encounters one of the nicest parts of the human experience for many people and they are trivializing rape
0: well let's talk about time's up which is this new campaign linked off of me too it basically is a fund started by celebrities for poor women they'll often say that it's for poor Latino farm workers and factory workers who supposedly don't have enough money to bring legal action against sexual harassers. So it's kind of a poor fund on the basis of sexual harassment and (laughs) saying that they're standing up for poor women against harassment and assault. I mean, what do you make of that?
1: I think it's disturbingly paternalistic or maternalistic, perhaps. Um, It it is like a poor fund, as you say. And it's creepy, I think. But I think what it really points to something really interesting in in the new feminism the kind of the bad feminism we have now not like the kind of first wave or the second wave which made incredibly important gains for women this new problematic quite media orientated quite posh middle-class feminism it, it often uses all women as a cover for its own self-gain and its own uh, quite narrow, selfish pursuits. Uh, You know, feminism, it strikes me, is increasingly just a rich woman's game. see this with the BBC pay scandal, where these women are getting raises of 50,000 or 100,000, or in Joe Wiley's case, 200,000 pounds, on the basis that this will even out and and make it more gender equitable. And you just think, you know, what does the African woman who cleans BBC studios for the living wage. What does she think of this? I mean, she doesn't come into it at all. They don't give a damn about her. They don't give a damn about women like that. Or you see it in relation to lots of the media squabbles about women's representation on the BBC or in The Guardian or or front page of newspapers and magazines, which is basically just very well-connected, often quite plummy feminists, basically saying, I want a column or I want to be on the front of your magazines." It's very self-interested. And you see it with Time's Up, where you have these drippingly rich hollywood women one of whom wore to the golden globes a top saying poverty is sexist and you think well you know tell that to the indian boys scrabbling around on landfills to make enough money to live on
0: just funnily enough that top actually cost 380 dollars Well, that
1: sums it up i mean it's just disgusting actually i mean we laugh but it's repulsive it's it's straight it's like marie antoinette level of cluelessness And you just think, you know, the African men who are breaking their backs to feed their families or the American men who have to take three jobs to make ends meet. You know, these people are imbeciles. They are clueless, aloof, rich, decadent imbeciles. And they can dress that up as feminism as much as they want, but it's not feminism. And that's why they need these poorer women. They drag them to award ceremonies with them and kind of pose next to photographs of uh, Latino working women, for example. Or they need the Time's Up campaign as a kind of moral shield to deflect the perfectly legitimate criticism that this is rich, wealthy, powerful women trying to become richer, wealthier and more powerful on the back of pretending to be advancing women's rights.
0: Well, finally then, Brendan, you do get met with a lot of hostility when you speak out about this, certainly if the Twitter debate is anything to go by there's a lot of viciousness around the me too movement and you often get called a misogynist a rape apologist or something terrible like that if you even question the kind of basis of this campaign but I mean do all women support this movement I'm skeptical even about calling it a movement because it seems to me largely to be based on social media and you know how much that's relevant to the average woman's everyday experience is questionable so is it representative of all women and if it isn't Why is it important to voice dissent against this so-called Me Too movement?
1: Yeah, I don't think it is particularly representative of all women. As we were saying earlier, you know, there are female cleaners and mothers and nurses and teachers and all sorts of women... Who probably look at this and thinking, "What is this all about?" Their problem is low pay, or lack of childcare, or difficulty accessing certain medical procedures. You know, their their concern is not that they're only getting two hundred thousand pounds instead of three hundred thousand. So it's completely a- aloof campaign and doesn't have any impact on most normal people's lives. I don't think. So it's incredibly important to express dissent against it. The, the fact that it's difficult to dissent proves why it's necessary to dissent uh you know anyone who does so like liam neeson or Anne leslie or more recently and i think most importantly margaret atwood the fact that these people are dissenting and then getting so much flack for dissenting really proves what a conformist liberal problematic campaign or movement or hashtag or whatever it is that this has become so I think there are two reasons why we must dissent. Firstly, from the basis of humanism, and secondly, from the basis of skepticism. We should push the humanist idea that men are not bad people. Most women are perfectly capable of looking after themselves in the workplace and in social life. So stop doing down men and stop doing down women. And we should defend skepticism. When someone makes an accusation of sexual assault, we should treat them well and nicely, but we should be sceptical. And I often think what would happen to Emmett Till under the Me Too movement? You know, Emmett Till was famously accused of sexual harassment by a woman called Carolyn Bryant in the 1950s. She said he grabbed her wrist and wolf whistled at her and said, hey, baby. If that happened now, everyone would say, I believe Carolyn Bryant, right? Because you have to believe all women. And Lena Dunham says women never lie about sexual assault. So all these women would be lining up behind Carolyn Bryan against Emmett Till, which is exactly what happened in the racist South. People need to understand the danger inherent in undermining due process in this way and why it's such a problem. And, and the key problem is when you automatically believe women, when you create a climate in which women are automatically believed, you create a climate in which women are encouraged to lie because there's no blowback they will suffer no consequences. So you sanction lying, or you sanction myth-making, or you sanction exaggeration. That's exactly what happened in relation to Emmett Till. Carolyn Bryant knew, because of the climate she lived in, which is one where white women were respected and black boys were not, she knew she would be believed, so she had nothing to lose. So uh, a culture of automatic belief is incredibly dangerous for everyone involved, and it damages justice. And Me Too, it seems to me, is incredibly destructive of justice at the moment.
0: That was Brendan O'Neill on Me Too. Now for our next guest. Carillion, Britain's second largest construction company, has gone into liquidation. This means that 43,000 workers potentially have their jobs hanging in the balance. This is huge. How did this happen? Well, Carillion is being cited as an example of reckless corporate irresponsibility, But as Phil Mullen, author of Creative Destruction, tells me, Carillion's failure wasn't simply about greed. Indebted companies are commonplace, and where Carillion went, it's very likely that a lot more companies are going to potentially follow. So what is to be done? How can we react to a company this big failing? Phil has talked about the zombie economy before on this podcast and he called Carillion on Spike this week a zombie company. To find out what he meant I gave him a ring. Well Phil let's start off with the basics. Can you explain to us how a company the size of Carillion has got to the point it's at now of having to go into liquidation? I mean is this surprising that it's come to this or could this have been predicted?
2: Well many people were predicting it. I think going back what nearly five years ago, 2013, I think, was the first time that hedge funds in the city were identifying that this was a company which was in uh, potentially serious financial trouble. I think that's probably, to me, one of the most striking things about the reaction to this collapse over the last couple of days, which is that people have been surprised in general. People have been surprised by it, even though amongst financial practitioners, uh, it was far from that, and was something which was uh, which was well known. And I think it's that it's an ind- indicative that we're in a time in which something which in the past would have been quite normal, a big business like Carillion collapsing, is something that we find we find a shock, we find surprising, because it's become a less normal feature of the modern capitalist society if mean, if you think back just 20 30 years think back to the 70s and 80s big corporate collapses were were pretty common we recognized at that time that that's the nature of the beast you know that a capitalist system in long-term protracted depression we will see these collapses every so often. So I think the focus on this as being in some way exceptional is, I think, missing the bigger point here.
0: There have been reports of firemen being put on standby to help serve school dinners, of people potentially losing their jobs. Some people have actually reported that they have been laid off as a result of this. I mean, is the hype around the significance of Carillion going into liquidation really true? Is it really as bad as everyone's making out to be?
2: Oh, I think I think the damage is great. I don't think that side of it's being hyped up excessively. I think uh, you know there are tens of thousands of people and um, uh, who are directly affected in terms of you know where their wages are going to be paid this week, their families, there's the pensioners who are relying on on this company's pension funds which are going to see their their payments cut and there are all the services that you've just mentioned uh, and all the many thousands of suppliers who are providing services to Carillion to the end, uh, to to whatever services Carillion is contracted to. So it is a very disruptive event. And as to where it's going to go, we can't be complacent about that even. This could be a trigger for something much, much wider and deeper. Because what it illustrates is that not just Carillion, but large parts of the British economy are in a very fragile position. They're living on borrowed time. They're living on debt. has been exemplified in what we've seen so far and what we knew for a long time. Carillion has been extremely over indebted. But that's not in any way unusual. You know, large chunks of British corporate sector are reliant on living on borrowed time, living
0: on debt. Well, some are arguing that this is just a Tory problem, that what's happened to Carillion is a consequence of corporate greed, of the Tories not caring about workers and so letting this happen, of their kind of economic policy failing. But is this situation that we're in now a symptom of a much deeper kind of disease within the UK economy?
2: If you look back, what, 10 years, when I passed the anniversary of the, finan- the 10th anniversary of the financial crash, most people then were open to recognise that an underlying cause of that big financial crash in 2008 was over indebtedness. And there was a lot of discussion then that, oh, well, we've got too indebted, there's been too much excess here, we've borrowed too much, businesses have borrowed too much, banks have borrowed too much, individuals have borrowed too much, and we'll pay back the borrowing and things will save us. 10 years after, debt levels are as high, if not higher than they were in 2008. You know, companies like Carillion are representative of a corporate system, which lives off debt. That means that all these other businesses are also potentially going the same way. I mean, the, the, the line between what I call a, a zombie company, that's one which is uh, keeping its head above water, but relying on borrowing from others to keep going, the line between that and the Carillion fate of going bust is a pretty slender one. In that sense, highlighting the exceptionalism of this case, looking at what went on in terms of the deals and the, you know why these deals were awarded last year and so on, all that I think is missing the much bigger picture which is that a lot of other companies are in the same position. I mean, it's interesting looking at the construction industry in particular, you cannot identify a strong, profitable, uh, cash-rich, uh, debt-free construction company. That's the nature of the beast at the moment. So you can imagine that whenever the uh, the government was looking at who to award contracts to, uh, where are they supposed to turn to? The lesson we should be drawing from this is that this is indicative of a broader systemic problem, uh, which demands that we we do something about it. And unfortunately, the suggestions that we just tighten up a bit of corporate governance that, you know, perhaps we need to have a uh, here talk today about a public inquiry is needed to see what went wrong and so on. All this is missing the much bigger picture uh, of what this tells us about the fragile state of the British economy.
0: Well, you mentioned there potential solutions that people are suggesting. One of them is the Labour Party's arguing that we should directly run more public services. I mean, is that the right way to go?
2: Uh, No, and I think... It would be nice if coming out of this calamity—and it is a a big problem for the people, the suppliers, and the employees and the families and so on—we shouldn't under-underrate that at all, understate that at all. But if coming out of this, we could perhaps, you know, put to bed for once and for all this tired narrative of public versus private, state versus market, as if you know public provision of things is going to be better than what we have at the moment, or as if it's a more financially secure way. Uh, I mean, what this Carillion experience. Could illustrate, or what what it does illustrate, which we could draw out, right, is the very very close connections which exist between the state, between the public and the private and the market sector, and then that's something that relationship has become uh, more and more uh, uh, fused, more and more interlinked, more and more interdependent, in a way in which. the the difference, the formal difference between nationalizing an industry and having it highly state regulated, which is what's the reality at the moment, is pretty marginal. But the lesson that comes out is even when you have the state and the market, public and private, so fused as we see through the government-Carillion relationship, it's not a guarantee for stability, that it doesn't Uh, negate the fact that you don't make profits there's no surplus being generated at some time you're going to tip over the edge and go from being a muddling through insecure fragile company into a bankrupt one
0: well finally then phil your book creative destruction how to start an economic renaissance really talks about this whole situation at length and everyone should read it who wants to understand what the problem with the uk economy is at the moment You argue that a zombie economy is preventing innovation, business, the UK economy as a whole from flourishing. Do a lot more cases like Carillion have to happen? in your view, to clear the way for a new approach to the economy?
2: They will happen. The question is, are they going to happen in an an uncontrolled way, which you can say is what we've seen over the last period, even though a number of people knew it was coming, it clearly has caused and will cause in in the coming weeks and months, a lot of disruption to people's lives. That sort of collapse and disruption, there is going to be a lot more of it. But the question is, is it something which we take control of by recognizing that a lot of these companies like Carillion and not just in the construction and the outsourcing sector, but in a lot of other sectors, uh, you know, are past their sell by date and that we take the initiative in actually uh, investing in the new sectors uh, now so that we can provide the jobs for people whose jobs cannot be secure in those old companies. Uh, either we take the initiative on that or it's going to happen in an uncontrolled way. So the disruption is coming one way or another. Uh, My argument in in the Creative Destruction book is that uh, we should be collectively taking the initiative to see that uh, uh, there has to be a move away from this heavily over-indebted economy and create the businesses, create the industries, create the sectors for the future um, so that we can get ourselves some better jobs to replace the ones which are so fragile and so insecure and so precarious.
0: That was Phil Mullen on Carillion. Now for our final guest. The conflict between transgender activists and feminists doesn't seem to be going away. The news came out this week that a group of feminist constituency Labour Party women's officers are raising money for a legal challenge to stop trans women from being included in Labour's all-women shortlists. Their reason is primarily because they believe that women-only spaces and roles should remain for women only. And self-IDs, the term they use to refer to trans women who have simply self-declared rather than going through the process of gender recognition, are not real women. This poses quite a confusing but interesting problem. Should men who declare themselves women be accepted as women? Does this prove that identity-based politics leads to mess and confusion? And more importantly, when this is called into question, what is a woman anyway? To help me and you get through this thorny issue, I went to talk to Claire Fox, director of the Academy of Ideas and author of I Find That Offensive. So Claire, to start with, you have been critical in the past of all-women shortlists in the first place. So the issue around the labor or all-women shortlists and the question of whether trans women should be included on it is a bit of a difficult one. But do you think that including trans women is a problem in this case?
3: One of the arguments in favour of all-women shortlists that I don't agree with, but which is the argument for them, is that women need to be represented by people who share similar experiences. And I'm obviously anxious about that from the point of view of politics essentializing us and doing away with matters such as uh, ideology and values. And, you know, just because a woman is an MP doesn't necessarily make her representative of me if she's got the wrong politics. But nonetheless, it's an argument and that argument accepted or agreed on by some people is that in order to have representation, you should be represented by people who are women if you're a woman. So then we have this very awkward situation, which is now this is going to be entirely undermined, it seems to me, by demands that you should have trans women on these all women shortlists because obviously... If you're going to go on experience, the experience of a trans woman is not the same as the experience of a woman. It's the experience of a trans woman. I'm not saying it's not a valid experience. I'm just saying it can't possibly be the experience of a woman. So consequently, it feels as though the demand for trans women to be on these short lists has got very little to do with women's equality, even in a limited sense that I don't agree with women's only
0: As if this could get any more confusing, the petition, which is, this is what the news is about, there's a petition being circulated, um, headed up by some quite well-known radical feminists, which is calling to stop these trans women uh, from being counted in this Labour shortlist. And specifically, the even more confusing thing about it is that it claims that trans women are fine you know, it says it doesn't it's not discriminatory against them and that trans women with gender recognition certificates are, should be allowed so they're fine they should be in the short list it's just these other trans women who are self-identifying who have just declared publicly that they are trans rather than having the sort of legal documentation i suppose i mean in that distinction which seems quite arbitrary if we're talking about the political reasons to stop trans women from being part of this is that kind of speaking to the sort of craziness of this scenario
3: well i think it indicates that this is a kind of ever spiraling circle and identity politics eating itself but to take it at face value i think that what the intention here is that those trans women who have their certification may well have lived as a woman for a longer period of time and therefore if you're going to go on the representation lived experience question, you could say have got more experience of being a woman, but it you know kind of reduces the whole thing to how long have you lived as a woman you know and, and I, I've, I mean in a way it reveals the limits of women's shortlists more than anything else, because I think it does indicate that experience as a political factor can never actually be any kind of a useful thing. Because you are going to have, say, for example, somebody who could equally argue, well, how would you as a middle class woman know what it's like for me as a working class woman? Or how will you as a woman of colour know what it's like for me as a white woman? Or how will you as a as a non-refugee? woman know what it's like to be a refugee and so you go on and on and on so I think that's the problem with the women's only shortlist if what they're arguing for is is that we need to be represented by people who have shared our experiences we've all had very different experiences I just can understand that I would make a distinction myself I think there are people I've said on this podcast before who have struggled long and hard about gender and may well have transitioned and I think that that is different now than the self-declaration. So I understand the distinction they're making and yet it does feel slightly arbitrary too.
0: Mm. Uh, something which is less confusing uh, outside of this immediate debate is the fact that, uh, the you know quite simple fact that Any discussion about questioning trans women being included in these shortlists, this petition, you know, again, which I must stress is being headed up by some quite radical, well-known feminists, people that aren't often being criticised by the identity politics sort of lobby. The censorship of these feminist voices in this is quite significant. And you have a lot of Labour MPs coming out, Clive Lewis is one of them, condemning this petition, saying that it shouldn't be part of Labour's voice, I mean, which seems really quite significant that a loud feminist argument is being kind of discredited by a supposedly pro-feminist party like the Labour Party. Why is this being allowed to happen?
3: What I am being horrified about in the period in relation to this dispute has been the very toxic nature of the argument I mean the fact that you feel you need a petition in order to establish what a women's shortlist is would indicate the kind of mire that we're in but the fact that those people who would then put up that petition are assaulted as though they're bigots is utterly ludicrous but dangerous and totally illiberal and it's a declaration you know You can't argue this because you are transphobic. We will define for you what a woman is, which is ironic in a way, because we kind of all thought we knew what a woman was. And now that's thrown by the trans issue. And then um, when we're told that we're narrow minded for thinking we know what a woman is we're then told by another group of people, well, we really know what a woman is and we have decided that this is what a woman is and that has to include uh, self-defining trans women. Labour Party, I mean, Clive Lewis in particular, but when he kind of came out and condemned these women, he is kind of one of the leading, you know, radical Corbynistas. It felt to me as though this was just an attempt at closing down the debate. They want it to go away and the only way it will go away is to accommodate to a very small but vicious, loud, intolerant trans lobby. So it's kind of like, let's force that on people so that we don't have to have this debate. There's no debate allowed. You sign up to this and are in line or you're cast out as bigoted, backward, reactionary, just like, you know, you might as well be alt-right. They're being treated so badly.
0: Well, interrogating that point that you made there about... The trans lobby uh, arguing what it is to be a woman and kind of redefining that obviously it throws up that quite difficult <laughs> it's very rare that you actually kind of think to yourself what does it mean to be a woman because you've got other things going on more important political issues that crop up and take priority but if one of the big slogans today is trans women are women it's this kind of thing that you know people tweet all the time and stuff it's like a stated fact Is it true? Can a man become a woman or are we dealing in the realm of fantasy here, do you think?
3: Well, I think that there's no doubt about it that a man can become a trans woman and can live more comfortably. And I believe that that's true. Psychologically, some people will feel better to change their gender. Whether they are then able to live as a woman, of course, it's almost impossible, it seems to me, to pin that down exactly. But there are certain things that happen if you are a woman, not just social. You have periods, broadly speaking. You spend a lot of time worried you're going to get pregnant if you're having um, sex with men. Dominates your life as a woman. Childcare is an issue. You know, there is undoubtedly ways that we are socialised as women that mean that women can be in on in jokes about men and as women and so on and so forth so I think there's an experience I mean it's not that I think that that experience is the most important thing about me or about my politics or I don't want it to confine or determine or define who I am or any other woman is so I think it's very difficult if you then become a woman at 27 if you want to say that being a woman is partly about the experiences you have as uh, because of your gender, which there are undoubtedly a, a certain set of circumstances. You can't be a woman if you just declare that you are a woman. But you can biologically become a trans woman, it's true, and look like a woman. But as I said on the podcast last time, I think there is more to being a woman than looking like a woman or demanding that people treat you like a woman or any of these things. That's not the same. The fantasy question is difficult to answer. But one thing that I would say is that having been following this quite carefully, some of the uh, trans activists that I kind of follow on social media and read their remarks and have tried to understand and take seriously, all that they seem to do is talk about trans issues and specifically themselves. There seems to be a self-obsession, a self-absorption Always the demand is, I've been dead named or I've been insulted or why can't I? And I think that what makes me feel very uncomfortable about this issue is that I'm being asked to to buy into a world that's centered around one individual rather than a social world that's about all of us. And so if there's a kind of fantastical element to the trans question, it's an inability to move beyond self which I think is the destruction of politics and social life generally.
0: you've been listening to the spiked podcast to get your daily dose of spiked opinion head to spiked-online.com subscribe to our podcast feed if you liked this podcast please share it with your friends and followers on social media and if you'd like to help spiked thrive please hit the link below and donate thanks for listening